This week on A Lively Experiment, as the Republican National Convention wraps up, the sprint to November begins. But what will the presidential campaign look like this fall? And early voting has already begun for next month's Rhode Island primary. The Secretary of State tells us what else to look out for. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Brandon Bell, former chairman of the Rhode Island Republican Party, Brown University political science professor Wendy Schiller, and political analyst for the public's radio, Scott McKay. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jim Humble. It is great to have you with us this weekend. Well, the race to November begins in earnest this weekend as Donald Trump and Joe Biden try to use their respective national conventions as a springboard to the fall campaign. Over the past two weeks, each party has painted a vastly different picture of America and of each other. Brandon, let me begin with you. We're taping on a Thursday morning, so we don't know exactly what the president's going to say. But to listen to these conventions... The Republicans seem to be putting the pandemic in the past tense and the economy doesn't have millions of people unemployed. The Democrats seem to be ignoring a lot of the rioting that's going on in the streets. So we expect that from a convention. But just give me your give me your thought as you've watched both of these. I think it's, uh, you know, the Democrats were doom and gloom. And I think that the, uh, the Republicans have been have delivered a positive message. Um, this is an infomercial. We all know that we, we talk about this every four years. You know, it's, it's just one big infomercial, but I think this year, because of the unprecedented uh, times that we're in, uh, doing some of the live, you know, the live shots and, and having some of these folks talk, uh, the guy last night um, uh, from North Carolina, the, con- the congressional candidate who uh, stood up because uh, he said he was going to stand for the flag, um, you know, that's red meat for the base, but it's also, there's some uh, undecideds who are watching this and they, they want to know how, you know, what's going to happen for the next four years. And I think it's... Uh, Overall, it's been a great convention under the circumstances. Um, there's not really much I could say to criticize, uh, but again, both sides do their thing every four years. And um, you know, for me, it's you know, I watched last week and I thought to myself, at least about Rhode Island, you know, Rhode Island, where our calamari is great, uh, but for 80 years we've had uh, you know our state has sucked. Wendy, you've watched a lot of conventions over the years, and I would venture to say that the Republican National Convention is not like any you have ever seen. Um, You know, it's been amazing in a lot of ways. The production value is phenomenal. It's very good. You know, there's a lot of, there's some criticism. The president's really uh, bumping up against the Hatch Act and other kinds of prohibitions about using official residences or um, uh, official uh, members of the cabinet to speak at the convention. But these are extraordinary times with COVID. And there's an argument to be made that you don't want the president to be traveling around. He did travel on Monday, but uh, I think that those criticisms will probably fade away. I thought this is a, a typical do no harm convention. Same with the Democrats. Uh, I disagree with with Brandon. I don't think Rhode Island is all that bad. Uh, uh, but and I think the calamari spotlight was fantastic for the state, actually. I mean, it just completely exploded on on social media. So any good advertising for us is good. But I, I do think do no harm was the Democrats and do no harm is the Republicans. It's been surprisingly to me moderate. 
I am surprised. I thought there'd be more for the really core Trump supporters, but the president's looking at polls and he clearly is paying attention to the fact that suburban voters and independents are, as Brandon said, undecided. And he won by 4% nationally in the suburbs. He's got to hold on to that margin to win again. So it's been a smart, uh, targeted convention on the part of the GOP. Scotty? You know, if you ask that Ronald Reagan question and you look at the country, are you better off than you were four years ago? The country's sicker, weaker, poorer, and more divided than it was. And the weird thing about the Republican convention is they almost want to stop the clock in January. They're asking you to reelect the guy who said, I alone can fix this. And yet here we see all these problems all across the country. I do think there are very few swing voters in battleground states that people are talking to. I wonder if it's more than 7%, 6%. I just don't see it in the polarized country as there being a lot of persuadables out there. I think both conventions were aimed at turnout of people who already support them. And of course, we all know that conventions coupled with the debates are the real focus for the times when candidates running for president get earned or so-called free media, not paid advertising on TV. So I think it was important for both parties to do that and to get out there and put their spin on it. And I think that they both tried to do that. I just think that, you know, uh, for Pence to get up there, the vice president, and talk about things like, well, we're forgetting rid of pre-existing conditions. It's an absolute lie. The fact is this administration is in the federal courts trying to overturn the entire ACA, Obamacare. Now that's not a perfect system, but they had time to fix this and they didn't do anything. Even when they control the White House, the House and the Senate, they did absolutely nothing for healthcare for the American people. Brandon? You know, the only thing I would, I'm gonna go back to something Wendy said. Um, you know, what the professor said is, unfortunately, what the media has done is perpetuated these, these lies. For example, in 1940, in front of the White House, um, and then in 1944, um, in the Pacific Coast um, Naval Arena. So this is, this is not anything new. Uh, this is what... This is what that, that was a time of war. Do. I just want to say that, that in 1940, we weren't at war, but in 1944, we were at war. And, and, and in many ways, this is a war right now. You know, there, there's, there are so many, um, uh, you know, so many issues uh, that we have to deal with, and, and yet we're talking about imagery. And by the way, President Obama in 2012, which would be very comparable in terms of the conventions, um, because it's a re-elect uh, convention, um, had uh, uh, Kathleen, uh, Secretary Sebelius, had uh, Secretary Arne Duncan, had all these folks appear at their convention. So why the press is pushing that narrative that, you know, Trump is, is violating the Hatch Act, all these things, it's, it's so ridiculous. No, but what he never about had the Secretary of State. That is what's new. Oh, so it's got to, okay, so. That, we'll no, wait a minute. Politics used, to stop, politics used to stop at the water's edge in this country until the Republicans took over Congress. Under Ronald Reagan, we lost 149 Marines in Beirut. Do you ever think that Tip O'Neill would try to make a political issue out of that in the way the Republicans did this ridiculous Benghazi thing when we lost four people? It's changed. Times have changed, and the Republican Party is part of the problem here with these people in Congress, starting with Gingrich, polarizing the country and making this stuff really, really nasty. 
Wendy, go ahead and jump in. Well, there are, two, there are two points. One is is that I think to to both Brandon and and, and Scott's points, uh, that's the point about how, in my opinion, impressive the GOP convention this week has been to some extent by downplaying that, Scott. I mean, this is the really striking thing. Clearly, they're looking at the polls. Clearly, they've decided, and as you're right, they're about 6%, 7% persuadables. But, you know, Trump only won by fewer than 90,000 votes nationwide in the Electoral College. So when you think about that margin, that's the margin he needs. He needs to keep that margin. And they've been disciplined. Uh, partly Zoom helps. Virtual convention helps, right, to stay disciplined. We'll see, you know, um, if that continues. But they have been disciplined, and that's the striking thing. Yes, they're trying to, you know, we're not at war per se, I think, officially. Uh, uh, Brandon, at least, we're trying to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, and, yes, there's a war on COVID, but the fact is that the GOP hasn't really mentioned COVID. So the one thing that the GOP is trying to fight in terms of the presidency, in terms of the pandemic, is something that hasn't been mentioned all that much. But nonetheless, as far as conventions go, and I'll take your point about former secretaries of the cabinet, uh, although Mike Pence was on official business in Jerusalem visiting Israel. That's my point, not that he was at the convention. Mike Pompeo. Pompeo. Yeah, so, Mike Pompeo. So that's the point. But anyway, wrapping that up, that point, in the end, this is more toned down, less actually hyperbolic and divisive than people would have expected from a Trump convention. And that shows you two things. One, the president's team is capable of being disciplined. Second, they're looking at the polls and they know that they're in trouble in the suburbs. Well, Brandon, how did you, Wendy, how did your women friends in the suburbs like the McCloskeys? That's going to really sway a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah. A bunch of nutcases who whip out their guns at protesters. How do, you, how, how do the Democrats like the rioters and the lawlessness in the streets? I oh, come on. There were, no, there were no rioters in the streets at the Democratic Convention. No, I'm talking Joe about Biden, Joe Biden does not want to defund the police. Joe Biden is a long-term moderate insider politician. To try to paint him as the reincarnation of Karl Marx and H. Rap Brown is frankly ludicrous. Br Brandon, let me ask you this, because it seems that the memo went out to all the Republican speakers to use the words radical socialists. Right. Now, it's insane. That, but that would have been the playbook for Bernie Sanders. It's almost like they were ready to get Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden got the nomination, but they're like, the playbook hasn't kept up. So one, I want to ask you about that. And two, it'll be interesting to see what the president says tonight if he mentions the pandemic at all. I thought it was brilliant to have the first lady come out. And you had other people say, you know, our hearts go out because it, even the, the first acknowledgement that this pandemic has been a problem. So what about that? The whole radical socialist, every single Democrat wants to come for your civil liberties. I mean, I, I understand that's the playbook, but does that really play to the undecideds who are trying to decide who to vote for? Well, I think it does. I mean, I think, first of all, the people that are watching this are watching it because they're, you know, if they're undecided or they're just, there's no question that they're decided, you know, so it's it's the people that are absolutely voting. And so there is a, um, you know, I, I haven't heard the word socialist as much, although the uh, gentleman from Cuba the other night, uh, the refugee, uh, that was pretty powerful stuff. Um, I, there's a reason Biden won this uh, primary, you know, because he moved so far to the left and that's a real problem for him. And so oh, he did, he, he's going he to move to the right. Of he did. Of no, he did not. On what? <laughs> on just about everything. Oh, come on. His entire message throughout the primary. Um, I'm just going to try to jump. And now in. he's in his basement. Hold on, Brandon. Go ahead, Wendy. I'm just going to jump in to say, well, I think the Democratic challenge is to point out inconsistencies in the, Trump's claiming of credit about the state of the nation, as Scott is pointing out. 
What Brandon's pointing out is that they're just finding that in their mind, the sweet spot between emphasizing what they think will pull their own base in, but also reminding voters who are on the fence, and there's not that many of them, that Trump had presented over a good economy, that Trump is law and order, and we can just debate that in a separate segment if we want. But I mean, this is a fine balancing act. And what I think is interesting is how they're trying to walk the line. It's a hard thing to do. What's also notable at the convention, and maybe Brandon can speak to this, is that there are 23 Republican seats up in the U.S. Senate. Defending those seats is going to be a challenge. There were very few incumbent Republican senators who are running featured at the convention. I was really shocked that a few Republican challengers in the House and some House members, but almost no senator, very few. And I was I was curious, is that because the senators don't want to come to the convention and speak or because Trump wants to win without them? He doesn't really care if he brings the Senate in with him. He just wants to win re-election. And that can be the last ditch strategy. Balance it out. If the Senate looks like it's going to go because of individual candidates in different states, then Trump may say, hey, you better keep me in. I'll be the last Republican standing. That may very well be the strategy. I don't know the answer. Um, I couldn't get the president on the phone this morning about that, but I do know that uh, Mitch McConnell will be on tonight. That might not excite too many of the viewers here, uh, but there, there will be some, uh, set of, you know, the, the difference between the two conventions, and I didn't mention this earlier, we've talked about this, is, is, is some of that celebrity stuff last week was just so ridiculous. I was embarrassed and it was screeching to watch uh, Ju Julia Louis-Dreyfus and others uh, you know, try to make jokes and talk about, you know, the, they're so such elitist. I think the Republican convention was trying to bring on everyday people. And, you know, and besides that, I don't know what the strategy is there. And maybe you're right. Maybe the, there's a, there's something to it to, to not, you know, uh, highlight uh, a lot of the U.S. Senate races. You know, Brandon, you know Brandon, every five states, we Brandon, everyday people, every member of Donald Trump's family, I, everyday I, you know, people. You know something? I would agree with that. I think there were too many people with the last name Trump uh, that have spoken at this convention. So in the meantime, I'll just say Arizona, for example, Brandon, to your point, Arizona's got a very tough race and so is North Carolina and those are swing states. So why not have Martha McSally and Tom Tillis? I thought it was really interesting. I'm going back to that internal polling in the Trump campaign, uh, which I'm not saying he's in trouble or he's gonna lose. I'm just saying they think they have lost or might lose some of those people that voted for him in 2016 and their efforts are gonna be gained at getting them back. And it's a limited, and again, I think it's a great point, and it's a very limited time, especially uh, because it has to be choreographed, um, which, you know, I agree with you. They did, they've done a great job at the choreographing, the music, the West Wing type of um, uh, stuff. I think that's great. Um, but I think, I, yeah, there's probably a strategy behind that, and we'll probably find out as after the convention, the afterthought. All right, Scotty, you get the last word on this. You know, what's interesting is closer to home here in New England, we didn't see Susan Collins even anywhere near this convention. And the other day in Maine, she showed up at a rally and there was a large Trump banner there uh, in a, a place up in Maine where she's campaigning for re-election against Sarah Gideon, excuse me, who's the Speaker of the House in Maine, native of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And sure enough, when they put the photos out later, the Collins campaign airbrushed the Trump banner out of <laughs> the shot. That may be a, uh, a commentary on things to come. All right. Let's move on. Um, voting has already begun for the September primary. Maybe you've gotten your mail ballot already. I had a chance to sit down this week with Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea. As we've talked on, on this show uh, over the past several weeks, voting's going to look a lot different. Here's kind of a primer of what to look for, both for the primary and for November. Too late to get a mail ballot for September 8th, uh, but 
not too late to go vote early in person and be socially distanced and safe and secure. I'm really excited that we finally got early in person voting. And by the way, this is not just for this year. Uh, so there will be a 20 day early in person voting period before every primary and every election uh, going forward. If you don't wanna put your mail ballot in the mail, uh, you can drop it off. Now for November, I know that the board has purchased outside 24 seven uh, mail ballot drop boxes. You do not have to drop your mail ballot at, a, at your own city and town. You can drop it off at any drop box within you know, the, the state of Rhode Island. And by the way, you can track your ballot on the Secretary of State's vote.ri website. And we have 48,000 uh, mail ballots have been requested for the September 8th primary. For the general election, we're expecting the tsunami of elections and election officials across the state are, are really gearing up for that. The recruitment of poll workers is done at your local board of canvassers. So if you have a younger person who's healthy and uh, could use uh, you know, 150 to $225 in their pocket at the end of it and, and get to watch an election at the ground level, uh, I would encourage you to talk to your local board of canvassers or there's actually a website that the um, board of elections has developed to recruit people. So there's a lot of effort that's been put into make sure that early in-person voting and the actual day of the primary and the general uh, are safe and secure, not just for the voters, but for the election officials, the poll workers, who are the ones who are in touch with a lot of people. So Wendy, there's this great unease about mail ballots. I know a lot of people are going to have to go toward that. I find the early voting intriguing and the fact that they're putting up the drop boxes, which I think will allay some fears. If you don't trust the U.S. Postal Service, you just go to your board of canvassers and put it right in. This is totally fake news on every level, to, to coin the president's phrase. First of all, the post office handles billions of pieces of mail a week, billions of pieces of mail a week. We're, the post office is fine. The ballots will get there. What I am concerned about, not for fraud purposes, but for just manpower and women power purposes, is counting the ballots. To me, that's the big thing we're not focused on. There will be, as we know, millions more, and the Secretary of State acknowledges much, thousands and millions of more paper ballots coming in that have to get scanned and recorded and counted. And that's going to take a while. Not only that, 16 states in the country accept mail-in ballots. And mail-in ballots and absentee ballots, for the purposes of real life, are the same thing. So when they come in, they have between one and six and 14 days to count them, as long as they're postmarked by election day. So some states, like Texas, have a day. But Ohio has two weeks to count all these ballots before they come in with the result. Ohio is a key swing state. I'm worried about the staffing and infrastructure for the Board of Elections in terms of actually counting the ballots. I'm not in the least bit worried about the ballots getting there. Brandon? You know, I just, this narrative that the fraud doesn't exist, I, I let me just make this for the record. I have no problem with mail ballot voting. It's the safeguards that we have in place by state election law, which are suspended as unconstitutional here, but not unconstitutional in other places for the two witnesses or a notary that I have a problem with. But mail ballot fraud does exist. Patterson, New Jersey is one example. It just happened. Uh, they canceled an election as a result. And But the thing I'm concerned about here, um, more so than anything else, as goes to Wendy's point, um, which do we, do we have all the safeguards um, in place? And I just saw uh, something yesterday uh, where the Secretary of State acknowledged that we don't even have the technology for the uh, mail ballot application signature to be matched to the um, uh, signature on file. 
So therefore, it has to be done by human people. And we don't have enough people to do that kind of thing. So, you know, Dr. Fauci said two weeks ago before he had surgery, he said, in-person voting is safe. So if you don't trust me, you don't trust uh, the president, uh, clearly a lot of people don't. So then the, the answer is that um, Dr. Fauci said it. Wear your mask, social distance. Uh, if you need to vote in person, if you want to vote by mail, just do it the right way. Scotty. You know, five states vote completely by mail. They include Red Utah, they include Blue Oregon, and a purple state like Colorado. It's certainly something that's been done for many, many years across the country. They've done it without fraud. They've done it right. I only worry that Rhode Island and perhaps other parts of the country that now face the pandemic haven't studied enough what they've done in states that have handled this successfully successfully for many, many years. You know, my only concern is, and I did talk radio last week, I had five people call in who had been veteran poll workers, and we all know them. They've been there for years, 20, 30 years. This is their civic duty. And all of them, you know, it skews older. And Wendy, this goes to your point, not necessarily of counting the mail ballots, but to have enough people to man the poll. So Secretary of State said, if you're younger, if you need national, you know, honor society service hours or whatever, but, you, but think of all the people who have manned your polling station who are going to take a pass this year. I have concerns for the in-person voting just because of that. So that's the grand irony of the pandemic is that, you know, especially the Republican Party, more than the Democrat Party has been pushing in-person voting. But the question is, in terms of validity, when we go in and say, here's my name, and they check if you're on the list, that's the same sort of concern about validity and voter uh, and voter behavior. So we have problems all around. The, the backfiring uh, that this could happen on the GOP, just one simple thing, is that the GOP typically wins between eight and 12% more people over the age of 65 than the Democrats. They have an advantage among quote unquote older people. Older people this year are gonna vote by mail in record numbers, right? They're the biggest group that votes by mail now. They're just gonna expand. So the GOP by discouraging or putting doubt in the voting by mail, may in fact diminish or deter their own voting base where they have an advantage. So I think that's why the president last week said, I have no problem with absentee balloting, even though there's not a lot of difference because the procedures are good and the post office is fine. Trump said post office will get it done because they now realize they could be deterring voting among a population group that they have an advantage. In. You get the last word on it, Brandon, then we got to go to outrageous. <laughs> uh, I, look, I, I just, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I don't think that uh, there's the old people, uh, you know, old people are necessarily going to vote in large numbers without going to the polls. I do have a problem with the early voting. And, you know, again, 20 days in advance, uh, debates still aren't done. Um, things have not happened. I just, there's so many issues when it comes to uh, early voting. Uh, but that's Yeah, but I Brandon, Brandon, isn't that buyer beware? I mean, maybe for your local elections, but don't you think most people have decided right now in the presidential race, it's not like there's going to be an October 31st surprise. And if people want to go and do that, that's on me if I want to do early voting. I mean, I appreciate your concern, but don't worry about me. I, if I want to go 15 days early, I'll do it. Well, it's not just the presidential election, though, uh, Jim. It's it's the down ballot races as well. And I think that, you know, what this happens all the time. It happened a couple of years ago where there was a scandal in the state house, shocker, in Rhode Island. But there was a scandal in the state house, and it was only a week before the election where it was exposed. So if people had early voted, that would have been a problem. Kale Keeble. All right. Uh, we're moving quickly. Uh, I don't want to short you guys on outrageous. Scotty, do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Or both? Well, the biggest outrage, I think, is this 17-year-old kid who killed people 
uh, with a high-powered weapon that is illegal to have. He crossed state lines. Where are these kids not old enough to vote or even buy a beer? And what the heck was he doing there, breaking curfew? And where are these kids' parents? I mean, this is a serious problem. All right. Wendy, what do you have? I just think I'm going to just pick up on that. I, I, you know, Second Amendment aside, Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. You have the right to bear arms. But I think that some of the concern in terms of police shootings, of course, these are terrible, tragic shootings. We've had more of them recently. But just the presence of guns, too many guns, you know, illegal, legal, too many guns in general, a gun culture. Of course, a police officer is going to be nervous and scared. And a person who's being confronted by the police will be nervous and scared because everybody has a gun and people can get killed so easily. So I think that's something we have to reevaluate across the board. Brandon. So if you go back, you know, the 50 shows I've been on with you, I usually complain about the General Assembly being in session. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complain five and a half months later of the General Assembly doing this nothing. Zero. We can never satisfy you. <laughs> no oversight whatsoever. And it's, it's, it's actually become the most ridiculous thing in the world. We are five and a half months after the shutdown, and our General Assembly has not figured out how to meet remotely, how to do oversight on the nursing home issues and, and all these issues related to COVID. Um, we're in a unprecedented time, and they still haven't figured out a way, whereas so many other states have. You know, let's elaborate on that because I go to the governor's weekly briefings and it's it's been very frustrating because take, for example, the unemployment situation. The president carved out the FEMA money. She said for a long time, no, we're not going to do this. All of a sudden, the next day they're doing it. And look, I understand she's got a lot of stuff going at her. But Wendy, I think to have a little bit more of the legislature knee deep and to if she at least knows that, that the House and the Senate are looking at what you're doing. I mean, it's the natural check and balance, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that we, we, you know, it is extraordinary circumstances. And we and moving forward, we're going to have to figure this out because we do vote for people and we do want balance of power. No question about it. Uh, what's interesting is that I would actually blame Congress and Nancy Pelosi, if I were the Republicans, on this whole using FEMA, emergency money. There's a huge hurricane that just hit the South, right? Emergency money for emergencies. And we're subject to hurricanes as well to pay unemployment. That is, that, talk about oversight at the federal level, that's ridiculous. Of course, it's necessary because Congress has not sent the president a bill that everybody can uh, agree on in terms of unemployment subsidies for COVID. So this is the big outrage, right? Is that, you know, you're using money that is intended to help people from a natural disaster when you in fact have a, a Congress that can appropriate the money in, a, I think, a much more appropriate way. So this could be another outrage. Yeah, and now now they have a hurricane coming, so Pete Gaynor wishes he yeah. had that funding. Mm-hmm. Scotty, you have the last minute. Go ahead. Well, you know, I think that we really have to look at the fact that the General Assembly has not done a good job, and I have to agree with Brandon on this. I mean, the fact is that they don't even know a few months in now where the budget's going to go, and they have not proposed or put together a plan B some kind of cut, some way of balancing the budget. And they deserve to be skewered for that. And I understand that. As far as the hurricane goes, look, I have relatives. My wife is down there helping her family in New Orleans. And I just hope that everybody can say a little prayer for the people that are in the path of the hurricane. Absolutely. Folks, that's all the time we have. Let's get that on tape. Scott was actually agreeing with Brandon on something. We'll, we'll look back on this month from now and wonder what that was. Folks, thank you for joining us. Wendy, 
And Scott and Brandon, always great to have you on. It was lively. And folks, join us back here next week. Governor Raimondo is going to be making announcements about school next week, so we're going to be covering that and a whole pile of other stuff as a lively experiment continues. Have a great week, everybody. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.